so now we turn to uh, looking at the uh, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, part one, I want to sort of set up uh, some basic categories in terms of how we uh, approach uh, the issue, what our sort of methodology uh, is here. And look at these, these three categories of your worldview expectations, your sort of philosophical worldview expectations that you bring to the discussion, how you go about uh, establishing uh, evidence that is relevant to the question. Uh, so, you know, uh, how do you establish historical data to be taken into account and what data do you end up with? And then thirdly, uh, what you think the best explanation for that relevant data is uh, and that will also be in terms of well, how do you think about how do you go about finding what is the best explanation for something so there's really kind of two things going on in each of these three categories um, what you think at a worldview level and how you how you arrive there um, how you establish historical evidence uh, and what historical evidence relevant to the resurrection do you think there is and how you think you should go about explaining things uh, uh, and what explanation or the relevant evidence in uh, uh, relation to the resurrection uh, you arrive at uh, and these uh, are all very uh, important Here's a, a quote from the atheist novelist uh, Philip Pullman, who wrote those uh, fantastic His Dark Materials uh, novels and so on. He says, uh, Jesus was a great storyteller. To invent the story of the Good Samaritan, you hear it once, you never forget it, and, and you tell it to someone else, and it still has the same effect. Uh, the man was a genius of storytelling, if nothing else. Okay. I think this is very interesting when you start thinking what's going on here. You see, uh, Pullman accepts some of the historical record uh, about Jesus' existence, about his teaching. He thinks Jesus existed and he, he came up with and taught the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and he likes that story and the, the, that ethical teaching. But he rejects the historical record, as we have it, when it comes to Jesus and anything supernatural, of course. Well, and you can see why he would, because he's an atheist, right? Um, so why is he accepting some of the historical record and rejecting other of it? It's to do with these worldview presuppositions, I think. Because, look, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan only appears in one gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that was written at the earliest, say, 25 to 30 years after the event of Jesus telling that story. Uh, so you might say, just from a purely historical viewpoint, we haven't got very much historical evidence that says that Jesus told this story, right? We've got one source from 25 to 30 years after the event. Now, actually that might be enough, but when you look at some of the uh, reports of miraculous supernatural events in the historical record about Jesus, there's much more, historically speaking, much more evidence. So here's a chart of miracle stories 
uh, about Jesus that appear in more than one of the four Gospels. And note that the top four miracle stories here, feeding of the 5,000 and so on, appear in multiple independent sources. Scholars generally take the synoptic Gospels, Mark, uh, Luke, Matthew, uh, synoptic, viewing things from the same viewpoint. Uh, There's a literary relationship between them that is discussed by scholars and so on. And scholars generally take John's Gospel uh, as being independent of that uh, synoptic tradition. Uh, So you've got uh, several specific miracles that are attested by uh, multiple, quite early, in the first century, uh, independent sources of testimony. And uh, particularly if you think that uh, Matthew, or at least the, the so-called Q material in Matthew, and John, uh, that those contain at least eyewitness material, you might say that that testimony for these mir- some of these miracles includes multiple eyewitnesses testimony. So some of the supernatural events in the Gospels are supported by a lot more historical evidence than some of the ethical teaching that is very happily accepted by atheists like Philip Pullman. What's going on there? Well it's because the conversation doesn't just revolve around the question what's the historical evidence? Clearly. New Testament scholar Helen Bond says this about the the modern academic study of the historical Jesus. He says it only really began in the wake of the 18th century Enlightenment with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. The emergence of historical criticism in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between what's come to be known as the Christ of faith, which is what religious people believe in, yeah, and the Jesus of history, which is what scholars study, right? Uh, Distinctions that have underpinned the so-called quest for the historical Jesus in its various phases uh, ever since. Now this bears careful thinking about. First of all, I think it's important to to note that the Enlightenment was not uh, a monolithic anti-God movement, as Bond portrays it here. Just think of the fact that many of the leading lights of the Enlightenment era were Christian or at least theistic thinkers like Immanuel Kant and John Locke and Newton and Thomas Reed and, and on and on and on and so on. Also, note that the rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways, that does not allow, to use Bond's word, allow the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. It requires that distinction. It demands that distinction. And it does so absolutely regardless of what the historical evidence is. So the modern academic study of the historical Jesus, at least as Bond portrays it, is, we could say, the search for a Jesus that's consistent with a metaphysically naturalistic worldview. So the Jesus that is acknowledged by many atheists and agnostics is an understanding of Jesus 
shaped by faith in naturalism. We could say a Jesus of faith. Rather than an understanding of Jesus that's produced by you know, following the historical evidence where it points. A Jesus of history. So let's think about how we get at uh, the resurrection of Jesus in part two. There are three approaches to, to, to trying to justify this drawing of this demarcation line uh, between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And these, these can be mixed as, as well. But three approaches to justifying that distinction. First are the metaphysical approach that argues that miracles can't happen. And or, secondly, an, an epistemological, a how-we-know-things approach that says miracles can't be known to have happened. Even if they can happen, we can't know that they happen. And or, thirdly, a definitional, sort of semantic approach that says miracles can't be mentioned within history as a subject, by definition. Let's look at those three ways of drawing this criteria briefly. So the metaphysical approach, the claim that miracles can't happen. So, for example, the French neo-atheist philosopher Michel Onfray asserts that we should approach any purported uh, holy book, any divine revelation claim, from a standpoint that's hostile to belief in resurrection. That should be our, our starting position. And he assumes that the answer to his, his rhetorical question, I mean, who would have done the revealing, is, of course, nobody. Right, But suppose we take that approach. If so, we'd better not approach, say, the New Testament demanding evidence for its genuinely revelatory status. Doing that, after all, would involve a question-begging double standard. But it's a question-begging double standard that you find uh, the New Atheists and others uh, committing all the time. At least uh, the neo-atheist uh, Lawrence Krauss uh, admits this. He says, Look, a, a god who can create the laws of nature can presumably also circumvent them at will. So he's kind of at least admitting, okay, what you believe about miracles really comes down to whether or not you believe in a god, or we could say whether or not you believe it's possible that there's a god. If you believe it's possible that there's a god, basically you have to believe that it's possible that miracles could happen. Uh, so this uh, is tied up with our, our philosophical world view and we can't just give that a free ride in the, uh, the conversation, academic or otherwise. Secondly, the epistemological approach that says miracles can't be known to have happened. This is what, generally speaking, what David Hume is generally thought to have really been arguing, although sometimes he does seem to fall into the first position, uh, but most philosophers take his main point as falling into this position, that miracles can't be known. So the atheist Daniel Dennett, uh, he approaches this issue of miracles and revelation and says, in the end, look, there is no true religion in the factual sense, for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims. So it looks like Daniel Dennett is saying, my problem with, say, Christian belief is that there's no evidence. There's not enough evidence or no evidence. It sounds like he's making a demand that we give him evidence. 
say, for the resurrection. Right? But it also says historical arguments simply cannot be introduced into serious investigation of God since they are manifestly question-begging. No, 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 no. It's actually Dennett that's begging the question. Uh, he begs the question against genuine miracles, revelation, uh, miraculous revelation, by invoking, quote, the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles. So he says, I'm not going to believe in the Christian understanding of Jesus because there's not enough evidence to convince me that a miracle happened. But of course, when I investigate evidence, I must use the scientific method with its assumption that miracles can't happen. <laughs> this is a double standard. So the neo-atheist Christopher Hitchens uh, thought that David Hume uh, wrote the last word on the subject of miracles, as if philosophers haven't been talking about this subject since David Hume uh, wrote his uh, section uh, on miracles uh, back in uh, the 18th century. But as William Lane Craig says, that the, the, the falsity, the fallaciousness of Hume's reasoning has been recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. Uh, and this is not just like, well, this is what Christians think they would, wouldn't they? Uh, here's an example, uh, a book called Hume's Abject Failure. Uh, by the agnostic philosopher John Ehrman. Neo-atheist Jerry Coyne uh, admits that Hume took it too far. No amount of evidence, it seems, could ever override his conviction that miracles were really the result of fraud or ignorance or misrepresentation. Yet perhaps there are some events when a miracle is more likely than human error or deception. He's saying, we ought to make up our mind by looking at the evidence, rather than making up our mind in advance of looking at the evidence, which is what Hume uh, and, and so on would have you do. Uh, and thirdly, uh, the definitional approach, miracles just can't be mentioned in history. So Albert Schweitzer uh, famously uh, wrote that the exclusion of miracle from our view of history has been universally recognised as a principle of criticism, so that miracles no longer concerns the historian, either positively or negatively. And uh, the Liberal Jesus Seminar famously endorsed uh, D.F. Strauss's distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith as the first pillar of scholarly wisdom. And the seminar thereby guarantees, by definition, that miraculous explanations are non-historical, irrespective of what the historical evidence actually is. As Thomas Nagel says, useful quote, we had this earlier in a different context, uh, a purely semantic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science, or we could say, or to history, is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or not. I don't want to know whether the resurrection of Jesus counts by definition as being historical or not. What I want to know is, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Right? So if you are interested in the left-hand subject here of history, defined as miracles are excluded just by definition, 
Let me introduce to a new academic subject that I'm going to set up in, in, uh, down the corridor from the history department, which I think is much more intellectually stimulating and exciting, called What Happened in the Past Studies. <laughs> Where by definition, just by definition, miracles are to be evaluated by actually examining the evidence. Which subject would you like to study? <laughs> are you interested in what's true about what happened in the past? Or are you interested in what stories we can tell about the past uh, that are consistent with the assumptions that miracles are not part of the past? So as the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Montan says, um, if science really is permanently committed to what's sometimes called methodological naturalism, just as a methodological assumption of a particular academic study, uh, we assume that we are excluding discussion of anything supernatural or miraculous. In this case, he's talking about science, but we can apply this, of course, to history, historical sciences. Uh, if it's really permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories or historical explanations and stories that we can come up with, that we can formulate, subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic that the stories we tell about the past are naturalistic or compatible with naturalism. Science, he concludes, is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism because if science is anything, he says, it ought to be a search for what's true. Uh, you know, no holds barred, as it were. So, let's put aside the sort of begging of the question and get into the data and how we explain it. We go about establishing data using standard criteria. And scholars, of course, debate these criteria, which are the most useful, and what our criteria should be, and so on. There's a whole discussion here that we're just dipping our toe into. But let's just look at some uh, important standard criteria, like uh, earlier sources of information are better than later ones, all things being considered eyewitness sources to be favoured over non-eyewitness sources, multiple and especially independent in various sense sources uh, over uh, ones that rely for their information upon each other. Um, embarrassing sources, sources that are embarrassing to the, to the people who are passing on that information uh, to be taken particularly seriously and so on. Now of course using these positive criteria of historicity to validate specific historical claims, that is compatible with thinking that the sources that you're applying these criteria to are generally unreliable. But the greater application these criteria find in those sources, the more they indicate the general reliability of those sources. But still, we're not assuming here that the, the Gospels or the New Testament letters or whatever have you are even generally reliable. We're not even assuming that the Gospel writers are 51% of the time right. We're just treating, we're just saying, here are some historical documents from the past. We've worked out some historical tests that we can apply to documents from the past. And if things in those documents pass, particularly multiple of these tests, then that bit of information, at least, is a bit of information we ought to take really seriously. Okay? 
So think about the New Testament letters. Here's a chart of the approximate dating of some of the New Testament letters, all of course within the first century. Think of a text like Galatians, written about 16 years post the crucifixion, in which Paul writes about Christians being crucified with Christ. In which Paul talks about Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's an early source, particularly in ancient history terms, to have a source. So talking about the crucifixion and the raising from the dead of Jesus. Uh, think about uh, one Corinthians, uh, his letter to the the Corinthian church, written around about AD 54, uh, but Jesus crucified, I reckon, in 33, some people say 30. One Corinthians written in AD 54, but there Paul is reiterating, re-emphasising teaching that he had previously passed on to the church in Corinth when he founded it, when he was there before, in around about AD 50. That's only 17 years post-crucifixion and he says I passed on to you this creedal information that I myself had received and which therefore existed earlier than he got it. Yeah? Uh, scholars generally think Paul probably got this creedal information at the latest in Jerusalem from Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, in about AD 37, by which time of course they had already formulated it as a, as a creed. So the atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann says the elements in the tradition here are to be dated no later than three years after the death of Jesus. Atheist scholar Michael Goulder says a couple of years after the crucifixion is when this information comes from. A Jewish New Testament scholar Pinchas Lapide says 1 Corinthians 15.3 and following may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. So, in yellow, it's Paul, his framing. Uh, in uh, the bright yellow, that's Paul. This paler yellow, there's general agreement that this is definitely creedal material that Paul is quoting, that he'd already passed on. And there's discussion about whether the wording in white is part of that creed or not. Some say yes, some say no. But uh, there's general agreement that that bit at least is talking about Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name. There's another criteria of authenticity that talks about uh, that if you find signs of Aramaic within these texts, that's an indication it comes from early within the Jewish context of the early church uh, and so on. And then in the white, perhaps also talking about appearing to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Uh, and if, that, if all of that is part of the creed, it's quite nice because you end up with, with 10 points that you can kind of count off on your fingers, which would aid memorization. Uh, perhaps a clue that all of it is part of the creed. Early eyewitness testimony, well what about Paul? He also appeared to me, says Paul in AD 54. Paul writes that he is himself an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, see also Galatians. Uh, Luke reports, who knew Paul, Luke reports the same events in Acts 
look at Acts 9, for example, but Luke reports the same story in slightly different ways and different contexts uh, in three different places within the book of Acts. And this claim of Paul to have uh, met the risen Christ is surely given the stamp of sincerity, if not truth, by Paul's martyrdom. Uh, the then atheist Anthony Flew uh, observed that the evidence of Paul is certainly important and strong. I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence uh, that there is. Note that the outline of the story of Jesus's uh, death and resurrection could be established from multiple independent early testimonies that appear in different forms, stories, creeds, letters and so on, another criteria of authenticity from the early creed in 1 Corinthians, what's often thought to be a pre-Marcan source for the passion narrative that Mark uses, uh, and some of the sermons uh, in Acts, uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon, Paul's sermon in Acts 13, that uh, scholars argue go back to early oral uh, sources. Uh, so you can parallel these early multiple independent sources for an outline about Christ dying, being buried, raised, appeared, here are seven first century sources uh, on that general outline resurrection story. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the details here because you'll, you'll have the handouts and so on and can look at them at your leisure. Um, here are first century sources for 11 separate resurrection appearances uh, by the place, the witnesses involved, the types of interaction. People didn't just see Jesus. They saw him, heard him, touched him, had conversations with him. Nobody reports smelling him, you know, um, but there are multiple sort of senses involved, which is one of the things that makes a, a hallucination hypothesis quite difficult to sustain. Um, although the earliest form of Mark's gospel doesn't, doesn't narrate any resurrection appearances, it, the gospel is often thought to have originally ended at chapter 16 and 7, uh, 16 and 7 clearly implies at least one group appearance of the resurrected Jesus because the, the, the angels say to the women, you know, go and tell the disciples, you know, Jesus uh, will appear uh, to them. So it, it's clearly uh, predicted there. Uh, we have here multiple early independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances. Uh, the evidence includes multiple eyewitness sources. So we've got Paul eyewitness, John eyewitness, Matthew arguably at least containing eyewitness and so on. And one last criteria that applies to, to many of these things, the so-called criteria of, of embarrassment. People don't tend to tell stories that put themselves in a bad light if they can avoid it. Um, crucifixion itself is highly embarrassing as illustrated by this uh, uh, 280-ish piece of uh, graffiti uh, with Alexaminos worshipping his god, who's this man who's got himself crucified. What, what an ass he's made of himself. This sort of making fun of, you're worshipping a guy who was crucified. How ridiculous is that? And it's really embarrassing. And Bart Ehrman, sceptical New Testament scholar, says it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. Right. Uh, well, the empty tomb, Jewish scholar Joseph Vimesh, uh, says that the evidence furnished by female witnesses in the culture of first century times at that place and, and time had no standing 
in male-dominated Jewish society. And you can see that in the Gospel reports. The women come back from the tomb and report everything they'd experienced, and the disciples just dismiss them as, oh, you know, babbling women. You know? Now, culturally, that's very plausible that that's what the male disciples in that culture would have, would have done. But in light of the fact that they later came to agree with what the women said and to tell the same story, it's quite embarrassing to them, to the male uh, leaders of the church, that the gospels that they, you know, the church uh, recognises are ones that say, yeah, that the men didn't believe the women, the women were right. So Vermesh says, uh, if the empty tomb story had been manufactured by the early church, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, i.e. it would have been men in the story. Uh, likewise with the resurrection appearances, the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus were all women. Uh, look at Matthew 28, 1-10, John 20, 11-18. Uh, here are five historical criteria tabulated uh, that eight separate resurrection appearances pass, in addition to all of these passing the criteria of being early uh, historically coherent reports of intrinsically memorable events that if they did happen you're not likely to forget. Uh, so you'll notice um, they don't all pass all of these um, but we're having uh, a resurrection appearance reports that pass between uh, you know some of them passing six separate criteria uh, of uh, historicity. Um, four of these on this table are passing the, the eyewitness criteria, or, or three of them coming from, literarily speaking, independent sources. Two of them come in multiple different kind of forms of literature. Uh, four of them pass the criteria of embarrassment. Four of them uh, pass this historical criteria of, of, of um, fitting in with the, what we know independently about the culture of the day, historical verisimilitude, if I can say that word, it's difficult to say, verisimilitude, um, fitting in with what we know independently about the culture. So things like the Gospels getting uh, the names of people right, uh, the fact that uh, the woman's name mentioned most in the Gospels is Mary. You know, all those different Marys, and the Gospels were always having to disambiguate. Which Mary are you talking about? Are you talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene, or you know, which Mary? But we know from independent sources that the, the favourite, the most frequently used female name in first century uh, Israel was Mary. And now someone writing about that culture in a different culture or a historical remove is probably not going to get that kind of detail of name frequency and things right. Um, the sources to read on this are Richard Bockham and summarised very nicely recently by my close namesake Peter J. Williams in his excellent little book Can We Trust the Gospels has a whole chapter on this kind of detail about culture that we know because we've done historical and archaeological research but that people in ancient historical times probably would have got wrong because they didn't have access to that historical research. So these facts all pass multiple of these standard historical criteria that Jesus died on a cross, 
his body was buried in a tomb, that that tomb was later found to be empty, that various individuals and groups of people had experiences in their subjective experience in which they sincerely believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them, and that the first generation of Jewish Christians believed that Jesus had been resurrected. And that's not just he'd come back from the dead, like Lazarus or the widow's uh, son or, or Jairus's daughter, not a resuscitation, a resurrection in the sense of they thought, good grief, what we thought was only going to happen to everybody at the general resurrection before the last judgment, that seems to have happened to one person and history hasn't ended. We're in the end times now. The end times have begun, but in one person. This is a, a radical change in Jewish belief about uh, life after death, or what uh, N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. How do we explain this? Well, again, we have criteria, and they're debated and talked about, and we look at things like coherence, economy or simplicity, uh, explanatory power. Uh, if the hypothesis is true, would it make the data we have uh, likely? Uh, explanatory scope, how much data can you kind of take into account and explain? Lack of ad hoc hypotheses, lack of disconfirming evidence, and so on. Just very briefly here, I point you to uh, my books, but also it's interesting to note, for example, that a, a Jewish scholar like Goza Vimesh here, in his little book on the resurrection, uh, he has he looks at the historical data and he basically agrees that you know, there's this historical data we need to take into account. Then he has a chapter on how do we explain it. And he looks at six uh, different uh, alternatives to believing in the resurrection different theories that don't involve a resurrection. And his conclusion is, none of the six suggested theories stands up to stringent scrutiny. Uh, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He just ends up saying, so what happened? I don't know. But these alternatives don't hold any water. Interesting. So uh, I would argue, uh, that the resurrection is the best explanation of the relevant evidence, particularly when we're sort of broad and generous by what we mean about the relevant evidence here. Uh, if we include the evidence that uh, a theistic deity probably exists, you're going to be much more open to thinking that Jesus rose from the dead than if you approach the data thinking there probably isn't a God, you know. That's, that's obviously, and for, you know, rationally in a sense, going to make a difference to your estimation of what went on. But if your background information, as it were, includes belief in there's probably some kind of a god at least, then uh, you're going to be much, uh, uh, take much less, as it were, uh, um, particular data and ex arguments for explaining it to convince you that a miracle happened. Um, because you're already open a miracle at least being possible or even perhaps plausible. Uh, so including the evidence that a theistic deity probably exists and especially if you also take into account uh, things like as we'll be looking at uh, tomorrow, uh, Jesus believed he was the divine messiah but he probably wasn't mad or a liar. If you take into account things like Jesus was at least believed by his contemporaries to have worked various miracles 
various miracles that seem to point to him claiming through those miracles to be on a par with the God of the Old Testament in some sense. Um, if you take into account the idea uh, that Jesus seems to have fulfilled various Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and what the Old Testament says about who the Messiah would be and where he would come from and what he would do and, and what his nature would be and, and so on. Um, so really, again, the most powerful case is a sort of cumulative case. Uh, it's, it's the context of the resurrection miracle that gives it its plausibility and its importance. Uh, and that's something that came out and comes out in the debate book, the Resurrection Faith or Fact book that I recently did, just to end here. So Carl Stetcher, the, ma the main atheist debater in this book, towards the end of his uh, case against... Uh, well, he doesn't say the resurrection didn't happen, he just argues that we don't have enough evidence to think that we can rationally argue that it did happen. You can believe in it, but you've got to do it on kind of faith, in his uh, terms. So he says this, I think this is an important point, a good point to make. He says, the question is, does the claimed resurrection of Jesus provide part of a larger picture which itself makes sense? It's at this point that the picture becomes murky at best. The belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a building block, certainly not the only building block, in most all traditional versions of Christianity. And the other building blocks include a God who is claimed to be omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect. But I do not see a way of reconciling these claimed attributes of God with the clear facts of the world we live in. In other words, he's pointing to the, the logical problem of evil and saying, look, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that would basically indicate that the Christian God exists. But I find believing in the Christian God really implausible in light of the evident suffering and evil that exists in the world. Therefore, it becomes implausible for me to believe that a resurrection really happened. Right? That's really the kind of bottom line of his case against believing in the resurrection. And it's to do with the background beliefs more than it's to do with disputes about the particular evidence. So Carl believes that Jesus was crucified. He accepts that people sincerely believed that they had met a crucified Jesus afterwards and believed in the resurrection. He doubts the story of the empty, of the burial in the empty tomb. Um, but that's not the central point. Uh, so it's, it's not crucially about the, this particular data, it's about these broader worldview issues. And as I say towards the end of my uh, sort of debate assessment chapter in the book, trying to make this point that I uh, started with to, to close with again, what one makes of the resurrection depends not only on one's methodology in the gathering of evidence, and that's something we, we talk about and disagree about in the book, and the assessment of competing explanations for that evidence, which is another thing we talk about and debate in the book, but also upon an open and critical dialogue with one's philosophical expectations, one's worldview. Uh, and that is a point that I think is brought home very strongly uh, in, in the debate, um, that it is difficult, 
if not impossible to really to separate a discussion of you know an argument for Jesus rising from the dead from what are the implications of that in terms of worldview what worldview am I coming at this with and what would I have to believe in addition to the resurrection it's not like something like you know it's just a, an abstract unconnected fact that I might reel off in a pub quiz uh, that makes no real effect on anything else in my life. Uh, it's, you know, it's Jesus who rose from the dead. It's the guy who claimed to forgive sins, who, who said uh, basically that he owned the temple, that, that God's angels were his, <laughs> uh, and so on. <laughs> that just happens to be the guy who is crucified shamefully, showing that he couldn't possibly have been the Messiah. Oh, he rose from the dead. That's a pretty big indicator that actually God has just vindicated him against all expectation. Uh, uh, what, you know, and thus we get the birth of, of Christianity out of its Jewish background. Uh, and so there's a package deal going on here. Uh, and that means that we have to have the conversation sort of bearing in mind this larger worldview context and the whole kind of discussion about what spirituality is coming out of or playing into this discussion for the people involved, rather than thinking it's just about, well, we just do our, you know, here are historical rules and here is our historical evidence and here is our rules of how we explain things. And look, why, why isn't everybody convinced <laughs> that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, because it's not as simple as that. Which is not to say, that actually if you look at the evidence in light of standard historical criteria and you try and look for what's the best, most plausible explanation in light of standard criteria without bringing in the assumption that miracles can't happen or can't be known or can't be mentioned, <laughs> that there isn't actually a pretty strong case for believing in the resurrection. Thank you.